Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Hamilton opens up the first Ontario Centre as a giant vaccination clinic. The two Michaels are heading to trial. And the U.S. is sending us their extra vaccine. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I understand my dad got a couple of emails trashing my intros. Way to try to burst a kid's bubble during a global pandemic. But I mean, if you guys asked for it, here you go. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. And for all of you guys, it's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. He's a cheeky bugger. He's a cheeky bugger. Uh, good afternoon. It is 12-11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Another big jam-packed show today. Uh, an update on everything that we're finding out in regard to uh, COVID-19, where we are uh, with the vaccines. And uh, it has official. it is official that uh, Canada has asked the United States uh, for extra COVID-19 vaccine help. The White House uh, press secretary confirmed that uh, yesterday. Let's play a clip from her. Our first strategy is, of course, to ensure the American people are vaccinated. And 1,400 people a day are still dying in the United States of America. And so we are still in the midst of fighting a war against the pandemic right here. Now, we have vaccinated more people uh, in this country um, because of access, because of supply, because of operational capacity than uh, virtually any other country in the world. And we also want to be, the president wants to be, uh, we all want to be contributing members of the global community and getting the pandemic under control. Uh, Any decision we make about requests, and we we have them from around the world, as you well know and are are tracking, will ensure that we're able to still quickly vaccinate the American people as that remains our top priority. Uh, We have received requests from both Mexico and Canada and are considering those requests carefully, uh, but I don't have any update for you on uh, whether they will be granted and a timeline for that. So I guess, you know, what do you expect to hear from them? Uh, They've gone from zero to hero literally overnight, but they have to look after their own people. And it amazes me that we sit here in Canada and just expect others to give us theirs before they have finished doing their own uh, citizens. Is, Is this what we've become? We're just sitting there waiting for a handout and you know the 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 prime minister was accurate in 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 saying that we would all be finished by the end of of the fall the end of september um but that's when everybody else is finished so what's also accurate is we're last we're 57th to 60th 60th today depending on which uh, which uh organization you look at and yeah it will all come in after everyone else is finished even europe i mean which is where our pfizer uh is coming from belgium is behind us we're like 57 they're 58 so do you think they're going to continually let stuff out of europe before they're finished i mean it's it's common sense people have to provide for their own citizens and then of course any extra doses get them out there it's a global pandemic we have to get everybody uh vaccinated but it, it just amazes me how we just expect others to give us a piece of their pie uh because we were not prepared and don't produce this stuff and you know we've seen all around the world how this has picked up and here we are sitting again at uh at 57th so uh there is lots of great concern and uh, obviously there'll be some great news coming up at one o'clock this afternoon uh, when Hamilton unveils uh, its uh, first Ontario Centre clinic and uh, its ability to vaccinate uh, as many people once, of course, it does arrive. Let's bring in Wayne Petrosi, professor in the Department of Political and, or sorry, Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University and is with us now. Wayne, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. I'm fine. Thanks. I hope you are, too. Yes, thanks for that. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, am I am I being naive here, Wayne? But at the end of the day, um, we still will not have this portfolio fully honored until those originating countries have committed to their own citizens and vaccinated them. Is that accurate? 
Well, I, I, I think there might, might be in some cases a little more nuance than that in terms of the kinds of uh, contracts that have been signed and, and the unwillingness of, of governments, uh, unless absolutely necessary, to, to interfere with contracts given the, the kind of integrated nature of, of, of world trade today. But I think absolutely, in general terms, yes, uh, you know, previous Canadian governments, uh, Ontario and federal, allowed the manufacturing drug manufacturing industry in this country to wither away, and we're now, you know, having to deal with the consequences of that. Uh, you know, going forward, the, the, the current government federally has put in place plans to once again have manufacturing capacity in this country, and so hopefully, God forbid, if there was another pandemic, we wouldn't find ourselves in quite the same quandary. Are we doing enough to attract these pharma companies to Canada or even support the local ones that we have here? Well, you know, historically, no, we didn't. Uh, we left them hang out to dry. In fact, <laughs> some of the, one of the most famous drug manufacturers in the world was Connaught Laboratories in Toronto. Uh, you know, the people who brought you uh, polio vaccine. And um, a, a federal government in the late 80s uh, sold it off uh, to uh, multinational corporations. And, of course, they, had, they wanted the intellectual property, not the manufacturing capacity. So they, they simply scooped up that capacity and, uh, but didn't uh, manufacture. And, and, you know, previous you know, governments Ontario did much the same in terms of uh, putting uh, out of business, really, uh, drug, drug manufacturing in this province. So but, let's think, be honest, but let's be honest here, Wayne. Yeah. Governments don't make vaccine. Private industry makes vaccine. What governments do, just like with the automotive industry, just like with renewable energy, they make it attractive for these businesses to do business here. So, again, you know, governments aren't making these vaccines. And going back to the 80s, that's when regulation opened up during free trade. So, again, can we blame this on past governments? At the end of the day, we have to make it viable for big pharma or even our local pharma to 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 breed here. Otherwise, they just go somewhere else, just like every other industry, because governments don't make this stuff. The private industry does. Well, I mean, two points. You're, you're right. We do have to make the conditions more appealing. But uh, second, actually, governments did do it in Canada. It was crown corporations. Yeah, the- but we don't do that anymore. It's not the oh, 80s yeah. anymore. We've gone past free trade. It's Pfizer. It's Moderna. It's Oxford, AstraZeneca. There's, you know, with university and such. But, yeah, there, there's no here's the government of whatever's vaccine. Here's the government. It's private companies that are doing this. It's the no. governments that makes that make the environment conducive for them to do business. No, it, it's, it's true that, yes, we did Get decide we no longer wanted crown corporations to do anything of, of substance within the economy. That's a political decision, though, and there is no reason uh, why. And right now, in fact, Canada is, is, it has contracts in place to build both manufacturing capacity in, in Canada as well as uh, uh, packaging and, uh, of, of said drugs. It, that same capacity, we've, we've recently provided some for, uh, assistance to companies to do that. Uh, some of the companies are Canadian, some are, are not. But, no, we're certainly taking steps. And, and hopefully, like I said, we won't find ourselves in the same situation again should this, God forbid, uh, befall us. You know, I was I was looking at the the trackers that say where we are in the world, and we're sitting at fifty seventh now. Belgium is at fifty eight, in and from what I understand, that's where the Pfizer plant is. So, how do they justify selling more to Canada when they are where they are? Well, you know, the European Union is a complicated place. Uh, you know, we've seen this 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 almost uh, this uh, fight breakout between the European wide health uh, regulators who say. Uh, AstraZeneca is fine, and yet a number of individual countries within the EU decided mm-hmm. no, it's not. So it, it, that one is, is complicated. But I think you know we, we, we can look forward to this. Uh, the Americans will have produced enough by middle of May for their population. They won't be in people's arms. That'll take much more time. But they will have manufactured enough uh, of, of, of their drugs to put a shot in, in every American's arm who wants the, uh, the, the vaccine. 
uh, I think you, as a consequence, you will see a very significant uptick in uh, exports. Um, yeah. and, and Americans have made it pretty clear that once they turn to allowing exports in, to, in, in, in a great quantity, uh, Canada is, is, is in a rather privileged position, uh, followed by Mexico. Uh, in Congress, there's already been introdu- legislation introduced to, in fact, mandate that uh, once domestic uh, production needs have all been met, that exports be directed to Canada. Uh, uh, we have a very integrated economy, and, uh, and we have a North American society here. And uh, Americans see the need to uh, open up Canada to, yeah. and, and to vaccinate Canada it's important to them for economic reasons. It's important to them for their citizens, for reasons of travel. Uh, many Americans travel into Canada, and right now that's not happening. Just as you know, you have these hiccups in our manufacturing and logistics systems because of the barriers put in place by the by the pandemic. So they're anxious to get rid of them too, for their own reasons. Uh, and so I think I would not be surprised to see. Uh, a dramatic increase in supply of vaccine into this country. And I similarly, uh, I think you're going to be, by June 21st, you're, you're, uh, Ontario is going to be in a position where for certainly everyone over the age of 65 is vaccinated and where we're well on the way to taking care of most adults. Uh, Biden said, uh, as you mentioned, uh, May to June, they're going to have their adults done, hoping by July 4th, uh, backyard barbecues uh, going out. Uh, But as you mentioned, uh, and the border closure has been extended to April 21st now, uh, initially we didn't want Americans coming here because they were out of control. Now it's the other way around, obviously. They're getting a handle on the vaccine. We're not. However, as you mentioned, there's a lot of pressure from northern U.S. states to get this border open, reopen. So will they want to get, uh, will they ship vaccine to Canada, just as you mentioned, to simply get the border open? Well, they'll do it for a number of reasons. I mean, we, we have, a, we have a, a very complex relationship with them on the individual level, families living back and forth and moving back and forth across the borders, economically, socially, uh, in terms of tourism. Canada is a major destination for many American travelers because it's so convenient to come here. Our, our, econ- our industries are so integrated that uh, it really it does matter to allow firms to return to business as usual. I'm actually I'm I'm getting a news uh, I'm getting a news break right now. Uh, this is from Global News. Uh, .ca, U.S. to send 1.5 million doses of AstraZeneca vaccine to Canada. The United States uh, plans to send roughly 4 million doses of AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine uh, that it is not using to Mexico and Canada in loan deals with the two countries. An administration official told Reuters uh, Thursday, Mexico to receive 2.5 million doses of the vaccine. Canada will receive 1.5 million doses. Uh, the virus has no borders, the official told Reuters uh, on condition of, of an, on, uh, an, uh, on condition of a nano you know what I'm trying to say I'm not being uh, mentioned uh, we only put the virus behind us if we are going to help and be global partners the Biden administration has become under pressure for from the allies worldwide to share the vaccine particularly from AstraZeneca which is authorized for use in other countries but has not been approved in the US to this point and I should clarify we talked to the uh, Texas State University yesterday. The reason it hasn't been approved is it's simply not a priority for them at this point because they have enough uh, of the other supplies. Your thoughts on all of that? Oh, yeah, I think certainly we'll see more of that. Uh, the, the flow of, of vaccines into the country is, is really going to be quite remarkable. And we're going to change from a position where we're, we're just scraping along, trying to get supply in whatever quantity we can to try to get some people with shots in their arms, to being able to open up those kinds of those mass vaccination clinics of, this, of the example of which you gave in your introduction that can handle thousands of people a day because there's going to be that much supply around for that to happen. So I'm not surprised. Uh, I, I think... Uh, we're not far from getting out of this this mess that we've. So, been what are your thoughts, Wayne? That um, 
they obviously the United States is has been stockpiling because they're producing AstraZeneca. It just they're not. It's not going to be approved until May. Uh, but they've got lots of it that obviously they're not even using uh, because it hasn't even been even uh, approved yet. So your thoughts on Canada and Mexico getting the AstraZeneca uh, because it's not approved in the United States yet, uh, as opposed to getting Pfizer or Moderna? Well, I don't think there's there's uh, uh, any problem with, with receiving those extra uh, doses of AstraZeneca. Uh, not at all. And I do think also, if my memory serves, that both Pfizer and Moderna have announced uh, they're bumping up their export volumes into the Canadian marketplace in the next two to four weeks. So, like I said, I think we're going to have a a lot of supply in the very near future, and it's now going to be up to us and public health agencies across the country to make sure those vaccines are, are, are distributed and then put in people's arms quickly and with care for who needs them. Wayne Petrosi has been with us, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration, Ryerson University. Wayne, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Stay well. And, uh, and again, have a great weekend. Okay, thank you, and you as well. All right, let's move on. Uh, the trial for uh, the trials uh, for Michael Kovrig and Michael, uh, Michael Spaver are to begin in China Friday and Monday. The unfortunate scenario uh, is like about 99% of the trials that go through China end in a conviction. To talk more about this, Stephen Chase is with his senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, thank you. Any idea why this trial is all of a sudden happening now, Stephen? Well, uh, we don't, but we can. There is some uh, obviously very interesting timing, right? This is happening just as uh, the Biden administration is is has its first high level meetings in Alaska with the Chinese government uh, in the first attempt by the uh, Biden administration to sort of uh, uh, recalibrate relations after the erosion of relations. Uh, uh, with China over the last few years, so it's kind of it, it could be a power move. Uh, in fact, it's interesting the time, the itinerary for the meeting uh, between you know Secretary of State Blinken and other officials with the Chinese Communist Party officials in Anchorage. It actually uh, they will be meeting at the exact same time, like exact same time that Michael Spavor goes to trial. Does so this it, help negotiate? Does this help negotiation? The fact that China's turning up the heat just prior to this meeting. Um, it depends what you mean by help negotiations. Does it help the two Michaels? N- not clear. The United States has talked in recent weeks about uh, called for the unconditional release of the Michaels. And unconditional implies the U.S. actually isn't going to trade anything for the Michaels, right? Uh, that is. Uh, the U- Canada has been looking to the United States to resolve the case of Meng Wanzhou, the Huawei executive who uh, uh, was arrested in, in Canada and is on bail in Vancouver as she fights extradition to the U.S. on uh, charges related to uh, violating U.S. sanctions. And the Canada has been asking the Biden administration, now that Mr. Trump is gone and this all happened under Mr. Trump, can you please... Uh, do something to ensure that Meng Wanzhou can can go home and uh, the two Michaels can be returned to Canada. Of course, the assumption, and this is a broadly held assumption, which even the Prime Minister has has acknowledged, is that the Michaels were arrested because of Miss Meng's arrest in Vancouver. So Canada's been asking the United States to do something, the new Biden administration. Biden administration hasn't actually made any commitment to do so, in fact, they've called for the unconditional surrender, uh, the unconditional return. Uh, so what we see, uh, what it looks like is China is saying, uh, we're, we're, con- we're, we're, we're determined to prosecute and convict these men, and uh, we're not going to you know, put anything on the back burner because we're considering a settlement. So it's a power move by China. Uh, it depends really, frankly, on whether the United States is willing to trade something or is willing to spend some political capital 
in the process. Like they would have to withdraw the indictment against Ms. Meng or withdraw the extradition request. And uh, will they do that? They could have already done that. So again, I think a lot of this depends on whether the United States is willing to deal. And how much of a priority, where is this on the agenda of that meeting in Alaska? From what we understand, they want the U.S. wants to take some time to analyze their policy with China before moving forward. Is that accurate? I think it's in column D of the agenda. There are many other wow. issues the United States cares about besides the two Michaels. They have, uh, obviously, uh, they put uh, Chinese companies on the sanctions lists. They, uh, they, there was uh, all kinds of trade tariffs. There was, uh, you know, three years of trade wars. So th- there is um, climate change, which they want to cooperate with the Chinese on. So there's a lot of issues besides the Michaels. Um, it's, we don't, it's not apparent that it's a priority. On the other hand, having said all of this, the, the uh, Chinese government uh, will not give up the Michaels without something to demonstrate that they were right. And so convicting them could be a prelude to deporting them. You're not going to deport them without convicting them because then it yeah. raises questions about why you held them for 800 days. Yeah. And of course, as, as we all know, uh, once you go to trial in China, trials normally only last a day, and the conviction rate is 99%. They don't always announce that right away, that sometimes they hold the trial and then it'll be months before you hear if people are convicted or not. But this could be a prelude to a deal as well, because China will not let the men go without having done something to demonstrate it was, it was, it was justified to have locked them up in the first place. So you're saying, and again, we're all looking into a crystal ball at this point, um, but many have said that, you know, once there is a conviction, and and we're assuming there will be because that's the way they operate 99% of the time, uh, and if there is a conviction, will it be harder to get them out at that point? But as you're saying, they might, you know, look that as a way to, to close this chapter and, and, you know, they are guilty. We're just being nice to let them go. I don't know. I know people have said that, but I don't think that's a universally held opinion. And, um, you know, our one of the premises underlying the sort of discussion of this in Canada is that we don't put a lot of stock in the Chinese justice system following um, a set series of procedures, there is a lot of arbitrariness in it, just like the arbitrary manner in which they arrested them and imposed what Trudeau, what Prime Minister Trudeau has called trumped up charges on them. So they can really do whatever they want. How you mentioned that uh, these trials often only take a, a day or so uh, and are relatively quick, but that doesn't mean we will find out a verdict in a day or so. This could st- they could actually have a have a have a trial and a conviction and not tell us for a couple of months. Well, no. Uh, what the uh, there's a, there's a case, for instance, of a Richmond, B.C. wine merchant, John Chang, which we we followed a few years ago. He was convicted. He, he had a he had a, a court date of a, I believe it was a day, and we didn't hear any sentence for months. So they just happened to hold the court trials one day, and then they could take months before they actually announced the sent the, uh, the 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 verdict. Where do you see this going? What does your gut tell you? Well, my gut tells you it all, tells me that it's all dependent on whether the Biden administration is is willing to spend capital. This is all about this was all started because the Justice Department under Donald Trump made it a priority to order the extradition of a Chinese executive. Uh, and the, that set in motion the whole chain of events that re- re- resulted in Meng Wanzhou being arrested in December 2018 and then the Michaels being arrested in retaliation. And so it's up to the Americans to undo this, but the Chinese aren't going to uh, give this up without uh, some kind of negotiation. And the what would, what would... has to show it, has to demonstrate that it wants to, and so far they haven't. They've said... Uh, they've called for the unconditional surrender, which implies that there's no, they, want, they want the Chinese to do this without any conditions, which doesn't make sense given the fact that they have to withdraw the indictment against Hmong first.
Let's say, Stephen, that uh, that she is extradited down to the United States. Uh, she has to go there and and stand trial. Does the all of a sudden does China's focus go on to the United States? Where are we in this situation? Because obviously, this is a situation between the United States and China, and Canada is constantly getting kicked around by China. Yet they don't seem to be saying too much about it to the United States, who are actually holding the extradition warrant. So once it's out of our hands, and and the U.S. has the warrant and the Huawei CFO. Does China then direct its attention to the U.S.? The answer is yes, and the, but the problem is is that because Meng has so much money, uh, she will be here for years. That is, uh, unless she happens to be let off the hook. The extradition hearings actually end in May, and then we wait for a decision. But right. she can appeal for years. And she has the money to do that. Someone calculated to me the other day that she's got $10,000 of billing hours of lawyers uh, sitting in the court with her. So she will be here for years regardless. Uh, well, actually, not regardless, but if she, if she loses. But you're right. They, the reason the Chinese have focused on us is because we're a small country and a weak country relative to the U.S., and they were hoping they could squeeze us. And... Um, Despite the advice of the Chrétien era politicians who, have, who pleaded with Trudeau to let Meng go in some kind of prisoner swap, Mr. Trudeau has yes. opted not to, saying that would set a dangerous precedent. So she's going to be here for years if she loses her case. Where does this leave Huawei and 5G? It looks like what the Canadian government has done is they ha- they do not want to announce a public decision on Huawei because that would invite the ire of China and China could also possibly sue them under the uh, under a trade treaty we signed with them a few years ago and instead they've counseled all the major telco manufacturers to stop using Huawei and indeed all the major telco manufacturers have indicated they're going to exit uh, their Huawei gear over the next few years. And that's exactly the same thing Japan's done. Japan hasn't actually made a public pronouncement. They've just quietly asked their telco uh, wireless providers to fall online. So I don't think we're going to say – the government's uh, – as long as the Michaels are there, that gives the government an excuse not to say anything about uh, Huawei and about 5G. However, I believe they'd be reluctant to anyway. So our solution is to do it quietly without, uh, without sticking a, yeah. poking a stick in China's eye. Stephen Chase with us, senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. Stephen, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You're well. Take care. Here is today's daily commentary. Is getting the COVID-19 vaccination worth lining up for a period of time, not social distancing, or cramming into a crowded hall, possibly catching the disease you are trying to avoid? I watched video of Toronto's mass vaccination clinic, which opened up in limited form due to lack of vaccine yesterday. Hamilton's will open at First Ontario Centre Friday, and I couldn't believe what I saw. Seniors ignoring the signs and social distancing protocol, pushing to get into the centre like they were jumping on a tour bus to the casino. The standard signage personnel protocol was certainly there, but it didn't appear those lining up cared much. I'm not sure the military could have helped. The reality is the vaccination has become such a hot commodity in Canada, it's like watching a limited-time Walmart sale with shoppers climbing over each other to get the latest life-saving bargain. None of this would be happening if we made the vaccine here in Canada. And we were not anywhere from 55th to 64th in the world in vaccinating our citizens. How sad. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The U.S. to send 1.5 million doses of their AstraZeneca vaccine, which uh, they're not using because they don't need it. 
uh, and uh, it's, it hasn't even been approved yet in uh, the United States. It will be in April, but uh, there's no rush for them as they have lots of supply of the Moderna and the Pfizer. So uh, the AstraZeneca plant there has been ramping up, uh, waiting for approval, and then, of course, to send it to other countries as well. So now, yeah, we're finding out that, uh, uh, and this is uh, Reuters that's reporting this, 1.5 million doses of uh, AstraZeneca will be shipped from their supply in the United States uh, into Canada. And, and this is what we become. We're standing there waiting with our hands out. You know, m- more please? It, it, it's very unfortunate. And as we sit at 57th, uh, in the world. And again, we will have our portfolio honored once the rest of the world that produces this stuff honors their own for their own people. I mean, that just makes sense. Uh, how can you ask otherwise? So yeah, it will happen. It will all come running in, but uh, it will be after everyone else unfortunately that being said great news for hamilton uh on monday opening up a uh a facility at first ontario center to get mass vaccinations in operation let's bring in uh, paul johnson uh, from the emergency center city of hamilton and with us now paul thanks for the time i hope you're well i am thanks very much scott great to be with you and I understand you were down at the news conference today at first ontario center with the premier certainly a uh, lots of buzz about this facility being set up yeah, it is. It just wrapped up and uh, got a chance today to obviously tour the facility. I have uh, staying out of people's hair, so I hadn't seen it yet uh, set up, ready to go for Monday. And, and then, of course, uh, I hear the Premier talk uh, a little bit about this and, and really what is a, a theme across Ontario, which is communities ramping up, being ready to, to uh, ad- administer more and more vaccine uh, to our population and at full capacity certainly not where we're going to start on monday but at full capacity we'll be able to vaccinate three thousand people out of this first ontario site alone so how concerned are you paul that that you know and as the the premier has stated what what, what uh, really throws a stick in all of this is the inconsistent supply or the the moving of the goalposts as he's pointed out how concerned are you that a mass dump's going to come in and and the provinces are going to try to have to make amends and or, or make work uh, make this work and get this into people's arms as fast as possible? Are you convinced that uh, you'll be able to do that and then the blame won't shift to the provinces? That three words. We are ready. Uh, we're we're lining up. Of course, these clinics that are uh, in operation now at St. Joseph's and at Hamilton Health Sciences, the one that will start here on Monday, are ready. Uh, we have mobile clinics and pop-up clinics happening, so uh, we are ready right now. We're operating these, but operating them at a reduced capacity, reduced number of appointments because we we don't have the supply. So we always match supply to uh, to the available appointments. So nobody's, you know, our goal is nobody's going to get that call to say, "Sorry, uh, you booked an appointment, but we don't have vaccine for you." So we're lower than what we could be doing. So I uh, I believe we're ready in Hamilton. I know many other communities across this province are ready. So our question is, you know, when is it coming? And as long as we get just a little bit of notice, we'll be able to ramp up and be able to provide that supply to to people here in this community. So this clinic at First Ontario added to the to the arsenal. Uh, Give us some logistics there. When does it open? What times that it will be open? We say we hear at one point once we get enough vaccine, these some of these could be open 24 seven. What are the hours uh, and, and what are you expecting on Monday? Yeah, so uh, we're not headed down a 24-7 operation, but uh, there will be uh, times booked, uh, you know, sort of mid-morning uh, to the early afternoon. We do take a little break that allows staff to get uh, a little bit of their break in as they go, and then there'll be hours uh, from the early afternoon through to the early evening. Uh, so all of those are on the booking tool, so people can right now be booking appointments uh, through the uh, hamilton.ca uh, slash vaccine booking, and you can go on and you can actually select appointment times for next week. My understanding is uh, we've already sort of hit about a 75% for next week in terms of, uh, of the bookings that are there. So there's some still available and, and the times will be there. So we look at this as morning through to early evening, seven days a week. And uh, it will be an opportunity for people to, uh, in large numbers, come and get vaccinated. So as I say, right now, we're probably at the six or 700 mark per day. Uh, but we can ramp that up to 3,000 when the supply is there. People will find it a seamless process to, to come in, get checked in. They'll have to do all their consent uh, pieces, make sure that they have an appointment. And the big piece I'll stress is you cannot show up at First Ontario Centre and just walk up and say, hey, can I get a vaccine? All of the vaccine uh, delivery uh, through this centre, as with our other centres, is done by appointment only. You will be turned away. And we don't want people to make the trip and be turned away. So I'll, 
I'll let that go now. And then you move through, the vaccine will happen. All of our health partners and public health workers are ready to do it. And then uh, folks do need to wait about 15 minutes uh, in what we call aftercare, uh, which is just where we monitor, make sure everybody's good after receiving the vaccine. They're checked out and they're on their way. Generally speaking, we're hearing it takes about half an hour for folks if everything's in order to, to move through it. And, um, you know, we'll have free parking available at the York Street Parkade for people who come down here, as well as drop-off locations at uh, on Bay Street. So we're really set up for success here at First Ontario. So, and you bring up a valid point, and it was on my list of questions here, uh, Paul, and that is this is by appointment only. You just cannot show up to First Ontario Centre and roll up the sleeve. No, none of the uh, vaccine sites are uh, walk-up or just arrival. They are, um, uh, they are by appointment. Uh, or they're booked in as a mobile clinic and people know that we're coming and, and not open to the public. So from a public perspective, go on to the site. Uh, now that the booking tool is stable, we had a little little uh, hiccup with the provincial site on Monday. Uh, it's working flawlessly now, so you can go in, book your uh, appointment, and then we will keep adding appointments for future weeks as we go along. So uh, look for more appointments in future weeks, including some at our, at our pop-up clinics that are out in uh, other parts of the community. So... You know, we're, we're at a stage where we just continue to ramp up, and I can't say enough about all the staff and all the partners that are helping to make this uh, possible. Okay, so let's uh, make it clear again who can be signing up now and how they do that. Sure, and there's uh, the big group that would be signing up through the booking tool uh, are those that are 80 years, of old, 80 years of age or older. And the booking tool is there. You need your uh, photo uh, uh, health card. Uh, you can sign up with just basic information and you'll get your, your appointment through that. And so the 80-plus age range is the big uh, piece that we're looking at right now. There are other populations, including some staff who work in high-risk environments who are also being booked for vaccine, uh, but that is happening through uh, connection with Hamilton Health Sciences and being taken place in, in a different way. So really from the public's perspective, the largest group we're talking about now is those, those, that age range, which is now 80-plus, and um, they're able to come and, and get the vaccines. Where do health workers fit into this uh, equation, Paul? Well, there's a, uh, the province has laid out a broad prioritization uh, strategy around this, and so some, so a lot of health workers have already been vaccinated. And you think about those that work on the front lines of long-term care, those are working in COVID isolation units in hospitals, um, what are called very high-risk uh, individuals. And we're starting to work down. We've now done paramedics and uh, firefighters are in the mix as medical first responders. So you've got uh, others that are, that are getting into the mix. And that will continue as we move forward. And into phase two, more and more workers uh, in our city and across the province will be, will be eligible for vaccines. So... You know, all that information is on the website. It is it is confusing sometimes because, you know, we've got these ages and then we've got also these subcategories of other folks who are eligible. And I just encourage everybody to go to the website. It's very clearly laid out who is eligible now. Um, but it also, through the provincial uh, website, gives you a sense of when others will become eligible. And the bottom line that I'll share, of course, as everybody knows, but just to reiterate, uh, at some point, everybody who wants a vaccine will get it free of charge. So even if you're not prioritized, for me, Scott, I'm well down the list. It's going to be a while before my, my name comes up and my opportunity and eligibility comes up. Uh, so I will be waiting a little while, but then it will be available for me and I'll be rolling up my sleeve and getting that vaccine as soon as I'm eligible. Uh, what type of vaccine will you be jabbing people with on Monday? Do we know? <laughs> uh, so I, I don't know for sure what this site is, but right now for these sites, it's, uh, it's Pfizer and uh, Moderna, which are used in our mass vaccination sites right now is uh, as you may have heard and know there is a pilot project with uh, primary care that's using AstraZeneca uh, for again another population that's being uh, reached out to but um, in our mass vaccination sites we're um, we're Moderna or Pfizer. Do you uh, feel that these sites now especially the one at First Ontario Centre on Monday once it is up and running uh, that it will be uh, consistently running or will have to shut down again? No, our goal is that this is consistent. So once it's up and going, uh, it goes. Uh, the the you know if there were to be no supply of vaccine coming, which we we have no indication that it's going to go to zero. But if, for instance, there was a disruption in supply, obviously we can't run a clinic if we don't have supply. But that's why we've started the way we are. Uh, it's obviously not at its full capacity in terms of the numbers that we do. That'll do two things. One is, quite frankly, we'll work out any kinks in our logistics that way, uh, which is, um, you know, it's not a good news story because we'd like to do more vaccines, but at least it's something that will make 
we'll make uh, lemonade out of lemons, I suppose. And then as uh, vaccine supply in- increases, we will absolutely have the, uh, the volume that we need to do. In this case, in this site, 3,000 a day and some of our other mass sites uh, like St. Joseph's, again, uh, multiple thousands of doses a day, which is uh, going to help ramp up the numbers who can get the vaccine. Paul, what are you doing to keep uh, the protocols and such in place at such large mass vaccination centers? You know, I was watching some clips of Toronto yesterday, and wow, it just seemed like, you know, uh, the seniors were just cramming into the doors of this place uh, and and certainly not keeping uh, social distance uh, at all. I mean, obviously, you can imagine the demand for these sorts of things, but how do you keep people protected at these large sites? Well, first of all, we ask people, of course, to follow the public health guidelines when they're coming here. So wear a mask and be masked even when you're uh, in line. But the other thing is we've been we've been so um, we've worked so hard logistically to find the right kinds of locations. And the wonderful part of First Ontario Centre is it's a huge complex. So we can keep uh, separation even as large numbers of people come in. They will see all sorts of markings on the floor, which will indicate how to keep that that distance sanitizer at every station at every check along the way when you check in when you get your vaccine when you're in the uh the the uh, area where we just uh, do a bit of aftercare and make sure everybody's okay before they go on so all of those things are in place and the other piece is the really important piece let's say it again these are by appointment only so we will uh, be able to throttle folks uh, in terms of numbers up and down because we'll know how many people are coming if you had a situation where you said you know, everybody can just come at one particular time, then obviously, yeah. Scott, it would just be crazy. So if people hold to that, uh, come when you're come close to your appointment time. Uh, we have all the other safety protocols in place. And of course, active screening will happen and active screening happens for all the staff that are happening, uh, working in the site each and every day. So we'll do our very best to make sure that uh, everybody's safe. Man, what a logistical feat this must be. Uh, Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Center, City of Hamilton, uh, who was, uh, of course, down at the Premier's news conference earlier uh, at the First Ontario Center looking at the uh, new mass vaccination facility, which will open on Monday. Again, Paul, good work. Kudos to everybody at the city who's uh, doing so much to keep us safe. Thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. All right, let's move on. Uh, Do you have the app? Did you download the COVID app? Is it working? Uh, one year into the pandemic, uh, COVID-19 is showing that tech can't solve uh, a difficult societal problem. To talk more about all of this, Aaron Moreau is with us, Assistant Professor, Brock University Center for Digital Humanities, and with us now. Aaron, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me on, Scott. You know, we, we've certainly seen, Aaron, how, how technology has saved us on so many fronts, yet we're, we're, we haven't jumped on this. How come? Well, it's a difficult thing to balance. Um, I think that when the pandemic hit, we were really looking for any solution that would, um, you know, give us give us an edge on this really unknown virus. Um, we're in a very different position now with uh, the vaccines now rolling out, um, though, you know, maybe not as fast as we'd like. Um, but again, we were looking for any kind of solution that would help us um, to mitigate the risk of the virus. And, um, you know, the, the COVID alert app um, is, was one part of that, that, uh, that skill or that, that uh, capacity within the government to assist in contact tracing. Um, now that we've been a year in and um, the first interim report on the COVID-19 exposure notification system, as it's called, um, that first report's been published last month and the adoption rates on the app have been really low um, just 6 million Canadians um, have downloaded it, um, and it's been used 20,000 times to um, enter the one-time key. Um, that is, that you've had a positive infection, and so you're letting people know that they might be at risk. And so that's a pretty low usage rate, and it's lower than a lot of researchers have uh, estimated uh, to be effective in this case. And so we're looking at uh, we're looking at this technology now in the in the hopefully in the wake of the virus, um, and some of the consequences that will emerge from it. So it seemed that people were eager to sign up for it, or at least some, but not necessarily report if they tested positive. That's right. So there was an issue around usage, um, adoption, um, and really there was a lot of onus on individual Canadians to um, do the right thing, download the app, and use it effectively and correctly, leave it on, um, on their phone, and have their phone with them. Um, and it just frankly really hasn't worked. And we, we, I think we're looking at a kind of 
Silicon Valley um, optimism um, in the ability for software to solve these big intractable kind of societal problems like dealing with a pandemic. And so we've been, um, you know, doing the, the good work of social distancing and wearing masks and hand washing and staying isolated in our homes and things. Um, but I think that as we as we move into this period of vaccination, it's important that we look at what we're inheriting from the app. And the app itself, I use it. I'm I'm uh, very happy to have it on my phone. But the technology that underlies it was developed by Google and Apple in partnership. And we're going to inherit now um, a system that's embedded into Android and iOS phones that it has digital tracking and surveillance as a part of the operating system now that gives very high definition, fine-grained tracking abilities to these companies. And this is something that emerged at a period of crisis. And so this is something that we want to be thinking about as we come out of um, the current crisis, that is the pandemic, and uh, perhaps avoid entering into, um, you know, a a surveillance uh, situation where we have um, companies that have data they shouldn't. So, Aaron, even if this is over and we shut it down, we are still being tracked. It is a, a an optional toggle on your on your phone, so you can dig into your system settings and find the place where you can turn it off and on. Um, now, the the fact that it exists is what concerns me, and I think that that's why I'm I'm wanting to talk to you is that it's not that, that the app itself is going to, um, you know, itself be a problem for your, for your privacy or that the companies are themselves tracking you. It is that the technology now exists. It's shared between these massive corporations that own nearly 100% of the cell phone market and that in future years, um, you know, there may be product categories, whether it's finding your car keys or your glasses, um, that rely on this kind of close proximity tracking where it becomes part of our everyday, where um, we become accustomed to the kind of data collection that these systems allow. But it also is, a, is a, an opportunity to really collect data that I think we might not be comfortable with and we might not um, give full authorization or even do it in a knowing way. And so it's important that Canadians, that people around the world um, who use these technologies um, are having a conversation with their governments, um, with their friends um, about what's really acceptable, the kind of cultural norms that emerge from a pandemic um, that, you know, like mask wearing on the bus might become more normal. Um, but do we want something like um, tracking software on our phones to be normalized in the wake of the crisis? Uh, that is something that we've certainly seen compared to, uh, you know, Western populations uh, versus China. Uh, China has v- vaccinated very few people because they're locking everybody up. Uh, you know, they choose to, to give or sell their vaccine to other people to, you know, to to advance their political interests. And instead of treating their people with it, they're just they're locking them down. We heard the systems on the phones. They tell you where you are, what you're doing and if you're in the wrong district uh, and this sort of thing. Uh, obviously, we are nowhere near any of that as far as Canadians acceptability of that if we're this way with an app. Right, and I think that there's a, there's an attitude, right, that um, that we take with our privacy, um, and it's something that's evolving as the technology evolves. The problem is that it moves very quickly, and it moves more quickly during a period of crisis. And so, this kind of um, the way that companies can take advantage of a disaster to rapidly change, I think, public um, understanding of around the norms and acceptability around this kind of technology. Um, is is something that can kind of sneak in um, a new feature or a new capability that we might not otherwise accept, but because it's in a period of crisis, we can accept it. Right. Um, obviously, the Chinese government is moving in a different way, um, but I think as you know, as Canadians, we value our freedom, we value the kind of independence um, that we would have from that, and we made choices about that. We made choices not to mandate the app, and that is. I think something that that we can look at in retrospect. I think we also want to be aware of the choices that we make as we adopt these technologies in the wake of the pandemic. What happens to this app post COVID nineteen, or is it something that's there just for emergency in case the next one comes along? Well, that's the that's the conversation that we are now having. 
Yeah. Um, is there is there maybe a next one that will be coming, and maybe we can learn things about how this app or this uh, this standard, this technology that's in our operating systems, can be used more effectively. And I think it is an important tool to assist in in contact tracing. And perhaps it could have been um, done uh, better. Of course, we're operating in a in a crisis situation, and so choices had to be made. Um, but it is also a, a question of of how it's used um, in in everyday life, right? As we return to normal, and it will, I think, return to normal eventually. Um, are we accepting that um, this this technology will be an always on feature? Um, whether you use the the new technologies to find your car keys or your glasses, as I said, mm. um, is it something that we want to accept that that these technologies have a very high definition, granular um, uh, awareness of its proximity to other people, other technologies, whether it's a car or a doorway? Um, that kind of tracking is something that I think we haven't quite fully understand the repercussions of, but the technology is here now and it's in our operating systems. And it's something that I think we should be having a conversation about, certainly amongst our friends and family and things, but um, at the governmental level as well. Uh, we, we've seen over the course of this, as you mentioned, some jumped on board, some said no way. Uh, Alberta didn't jump on board this app. Uh, British Columbia didn't jump on board the app as well. Does every province have to be on board for this to really work? Well, I think, you know, we've seen regional uh, differences in the um, the effect of, of COVID-19 and the way that it's impacted, obviously, in large urban centers. Um, it's, it's had, uh, you know, a greater impact. Um, and so those are those are things that um, I I wouldn't claim to to necessarily know. I'm, uh, I'm I study digital media, um, and so epidemiologists will have um, their time to study the data and the way that the virus moved. Um, and I expect that that to be a, a pretty informative uh, period following the pandemic. And I hope that that conversation around, um, you know, whether we mandate the use of an app like this in the future, and perhaps, you know, society will be more accepting of this technology if it's clearly defined, well-regulated, well-understood as to how it actually operates and works. Um, and that um, I think that, that communication and education is, is a big part of, of effectively using a tool like this. Unfortunately, the way that it was rolled out so rapidly from Google and Apple um, and the way that it had a bit of a spotty rollout across this country in particular, um, I think that we're starting to see that maybe there are some things that we could have learned. And I think, you know, this is, this is not necessarily a bad thing. It's that we need to now in the wake of the of the uh, the virus as uh, the vaccines roll out, that we have a period of reflection about, well, how do we handle the next one better? All right. Uh, Aaron Moreau has been with us, assistant professor with Brock University Center for Digital Humanities. Remember the app. Uh, and at the beginning of this, how we were so skeptical of it. Uh, now, perhaps letting our guard down too much. Aaron, uh, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks very much, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.